Thank you for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. This is Brother Jonathan, and today we're going to be talking about common temptations, common ways that the Lord will allow you to be tested. We will be talking about ways that the enemy, uh, whether unclean spirits, Satan himself, or any way you want to look at it, comes against believers. And so the first that kind of using as a springboard from this is Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 through 23, in the New King James Version I'll read. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. And the phrase that jumped out at me was where he says, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. One thing that you need to understand is that really every single temptation and trial that comes against you or that is trying to hinder you, that is the point. The point that the enemy is trying to do is to get you to be moved away from the hope of the gospel. Now, I had originally thought that maybe going through a list of verses in the New Testament that talk about our hope, but really, it's a fruit. It's, it is interesting to go through. It says we're saved by hope. It says that we have a living and and abiding hope. But one verse in particular, I think, gets the point across, and it's. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, where we read, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. If you read the context there, it's talking about Christ, and how Christ and what he has accomplished on the cross is our hope. We have the hope of eternal salvation, the hope of eternal life, the hope of of the resurrection, and all these we read about in the New Testament. But we need to continually and daily be asserting our hope is in Jesus. The enemy is so much that comes against you is trying to distract you from this. You kind of get into this point sometimes where there's physical anxiety, there's mental anxiety, there's stress, and it kind of fogs up your mind. And it's trying to distract you from the point that your hope in life is, well, in eternity also, really, is Christ. The point of your life, if you are a believer, is Christ. It is what He has accomplished. And being steadfast and unmovable about your hope being in what the gospel is about, is what Christ has accomplished, that is your hope. Everything else is peripheral. It's secondary. Every other thing, whether or not you're happy in life, whether or not you have the peace of mind, in a sense, and there's another discussion about, you know, whether or not peace from the Lord is always there, but that's a different subject. But in all of these temptations, every trial, every temptation, you need to be remembering that regardless of what happens, your hope is Christ. Your hope is in the gospel. And you need to not allow the enemy to move you away from that. Because God will intentionally allow you to be tested. He will intentionally 
allow you to be tested. You need to understand that. Now, it says that God does not tempt any man, now that it is he tempted. It's in the context of he is not the one tempting you to do evil, but he absolutely will allow you to be tempted by evil. That's different. His goal is not to get you to do evil. His goal is to strengthen your resolve and your commitment. If you are never tested, then you can never be sure that you are following Christ sincerely. It's only when you are tested with an alternative or pressure is put on you for following Christ that your faith in Him is proven. And we'll see this in some of our examples, but you think about the fact that if somebody's just following the Lord for happiness, right, to be happy, then the enemy can come along and provide you something else that seems to make you happy. And you need to choose. Well, they both, you know, promise to make me happy. Which one is it? Are you going to follow the Lord? Are you going to follow what the enemy puts there, or the world, or the lust of your flesh? And it always comes down to, my hope is in Jesus. My hope is in Him. Happiness is secondary. If the Lord leads me through misery, my hope is in Him, not in my happiness. That's not the goal. That's not the thing I'm aiming for. Now, you consider Job, and we'll consider him more specifically here in a little bit. But you consider in the book of Job, God pointed out Job to Satan. He said, have you considered my servant Job? And that's one thing where you don't necessarily want the Lord to bring your name up when he's talking to Satan and be like, oh, look at him. And then you can just you get this visual image of Satan immediately turning his eyes, and just pointing them at you, and he's looking at you. That's not necessarily something you want, but nevertheless, that's what the Lord did. Also, Satan was allowed to afflict Job. People say, well, the Lord will never, never lead you to something that you can't, you know, you can't handle. No, the Lord leads you through all sorts of things that you can't handle. He does not lead you through anything that you can't handle if you trust Him. And that's the point. And this is why I said, my grace is sufficient for you in 2 Corinthians 12 to Paul. There was all sorts of things that Paul was praying, say, take this away from me, Lord. And he's like, no, my grace is sufficient for you. So the Lord will intentionally put you in a place where you are tempted, and God will give the enemy permission to afflict you for a purpose at times. Next, God was bragging about Job. You consider what he said. He said he pointed out Job to Satan, and he said, Hey, have you considered my servant Job? He's an upright and a sincere man, perfect in all of his ways and those kind of things. He was bragging on Job at the same time. Um, you consider this, and because people say, Well, what, what place does Job have? In a New Testament Christian, that's an Old Testament book. It's law, right? No, it actually wasn't. It was written before the law was given. But in James chapter 5, verses 10 through 11, we read, New American Standard, As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Now, I want you to consider that. It says, we count those blessed who endured. And those of us who have been Christians for a number of years or decades, you know, you get used to reading testimonies from missionaries, testimony or hearing testimonies from people who endured great things or went through hardship. And, trial. and we always esteem it when they come out of the other side stronger in the Lord, and they testify of God's goodness for getting them through these things or this great work that the Lord accomplished through it, though it was difficult. And we're like, oh, that's such a blessing. Look at what God brought them through. But then you never think about that about yourself. 
whenever you're in the midst of going through hardship. And just like it says in James, you consider the end of the Lord, the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. He's producing something. He's working something in you and also sometimes accomplishing something, um, sometimes to further the kingdom of God. Um, you turn to Second Chronicles chapter 32, uh, around verse 24. Let's read this passage, where it's talking about Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a righteous king, and he followed the Lord. Um, it says, you know, just like David did with all of his heart. And starting in 2 Chronicles 32, verse 24, we read, In those days Hezekiah became mortally ill, and he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord spoke to him and gave him a sign. Talking about when Isaiah came and dealt with him. You can read that in the book of Isaiah and also in I believe, 2 Kings also. But Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit he received, because his heart was proud. Therefore wrath came on him and on Judah and Jerusalem. However, Hezekiah humbled the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come on them in the days of Hezekiah. Now Hezekiah had immense riches and honor, and he made for himself treasuries of silver, gold, precious stones, spices, shields, and all kinds of valuable articles. And it describes how rich and all these things that he had. And at the end of verse 30, we see it says, And Hezekiah prospered in all that he did. So he was very rich, very, you know, accomplishing all sorts of things, right? Verse 31, Even in the matter of the envoys, or messengers, of the rulers of Babylon, who sent to him to inquire of the wonder that had happened in the land, that is, that God had healed him. Listen to what it says, God left him alone only to test him, that he might know all that was in his heart. It says very clearly, God left Hezekiah, not in a sense of salvation sense or anything like that, but it's like he withdrew and stepped back, you know, took away that spiritual guidance, almost as it were, the felt presence, some people try to word it is, and just to see what would Hezekiah do. And Hezekiah made a mistake in what he did. So consider that. God intentionally put Job in a position to be tested, even allowing the enemy to intervene in his life. Now, the enemy had, had to have permission from God, but consider that. And then in Second Chronicles 32, we read that God left Hezekiah, in a sense, to test him, to see what he would do. I notice that, to know all that was in his heart. That's actually mentioned in another place where we read in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, where Moses is saying, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. He says, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. God also allows there to be false prophets, even if they give signs or wonders. But he allows it to test our hearts, because if all you're looking for is signs and wonders, there's other places to go to than the Lord. But do you want the Lord? Do you want the God of heaven, the real living God? Or do you, do you just want signs and wonders? If all you're looking for is signs and wonders, you'll probably eventually be going to some other source 
And God will allow you to be tested to see if you want Him or do you just want something else. Uh, consider this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 18 and 19. New American Standard, we read Paul writing, he says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part I believe it, for there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. God allows divisions. We kind of think of them almost like cliques, or some. you can maybe even apply it to the sense of denominations almost. God allows divisions to happen in the body to show who are truly approved in His sight. I heard a testimony from a pastor just uh, this past Sunday, and we went to go visit his church. He had responded to an email, um, um, something that we had sent out. We were mailing out all these CDs on eternal security, trying to just provoke people to examine themselves about this false doctrine. And one pastor wrote back, was very thankful for it, agreed with us, and so we went to visit his church, and he talked about how a couple years ago there was a split in their church over the issue. And there was a church meeting that was called whenever he was going to be, they were voting whether or not to, for him to be the pastor because the other one had resigned. And he told them, hey, just vote on it. If you don't want me to be the pastor, it won't be. If you want me to be the pastor, that's okay. The people who supported eternal security, they weren't arguing from the place of Scripture. They couldn't even tell them why they were wrong, scripturally. They didn't use scriptural argumentation. What they did was they went and got every single person on the church, the old church membership roster, people who hadn't even been in that church building for years, but who were nevertheless still listed as members, according to the old standards. And they packed the church to make sure that this would not be allowed to be taught, as opposed to answering the arguments, right? Now, it turned out that they had just changed the membership rules six months beforehand, so none of those people could vote anyways. But I want you to consider that. As opposed to answering scripturally why something is wrong. Instead, we're just going to go be devious about it to vote out the person we don't agree with. That's not a spiritually minded person. That's not somebody who's in the body of Christ and seeking God's word and God's truth. That's just a church member. Those kind of divisions happen because God's showing who actually is following the truth, who actually is clinging to Him and His truth, not church traditions, or just, oh, this is the way we do it. I don't care if that's the way you've done it or if the way you've always done it. Is it what God says to do? Now, let's talk briefly about the ways the enemy tries to move us away from the hope of the gospel. This is a very broad generalization, but most of us, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, nothing about this is new. You read in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, King James Version, says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And so generally, when Christians talk about sin and temptation, most of them you can kind of, almost, if not all of them, you can lump under those kind of three categories. You have the, the lust of the flesh, the desires and the physical appetites of the body, right? Whether it be sexual immorality or even gluttony and those kind of things. And then you have the lust of the eyes. All manner of coveting, it falls under that, which greed and such things would fall under that. Why? Because you're greedy after something that you look at longingly, right? Um, there's the pride of life, right? Pride in general. And then you have this kind of hardness of heart, you know, or sometimes even ambition, right? It just becomes a sin, 
because you're not you're never content. It's not about doing the best you can. It's just about, you know, gloating, bragging about all your accomplishments. All there's all you can you can think about all manner of sin and find generally in some way, shape, or form how it falls under one of the three of these. Now you consider in Matthew 13, verses 21 through 22, New American Standard, where the Lord is talking about the parable of the sower. And it talks about starting in verse 21 in Matthew 13. It says, uh, Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And then he goes on, he says, And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And one translation says, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and in other places, and the lusts of other things. You think about that. The cares of this life can be used and choke the word of God in you so that you become unfruitful, which means you fall away. Um, We know from John 15 that that which does not bear fruit is broken off, withers, it dies, and it's broken off and burnt, uh, regardless of what anybody says that's talking about salvation. And then you can think about in Hebrews 6 where it says, that which bears thorn, briars and thorns is nigh unto cursing, right? And so you have the worries and the cares of this life, which happen to everybody, but they can become blinding, as it were, and so occupy your thoughts that you are moved away from the hope of the gospel. You're not hoping about having an easy life. You're hoping in Christ for salvation and eternity. And then you have the deceitfulness of wealth. It becomes kind of just a, a white horse. You know, think about drug addiction. So they're chasing satisfaction, which will never come. It's the same thing about wealth. Wealth becoming an end in and of itself, right? Having money is not a sin. Your attitude about it and what you do with it absolutely can be sin. If you're just trying to be wealthy to be wealthy, I'm sorry, that's sin. If you're trying to be wealthy to never have to worry about anything, I'm sorry, that's sin. Now, if you are wealthy, it says, which Paul addresses, but just be willing to distribute to those who have need. If God gives you abundance, it's not just for you to build up your own little castle. It's so that you can spend it on others. There's nothing wrong with having a nice house and those kind of things. Don't just build up your own little mausoleum. You're not taking any of it with you when you die. So having money, that's not a sin. But all of these things can be used to move you away from the hope of the gospel. Now, let's look at, let's focus in real quickly and just read bits and pieces of the first two chapters of Job. In Job chapter 1, the Lord introduces Job and the whole situation. Then we read this in starting verse 8. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there was no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. And so again, you see, God points Job out to Satan. God's going to allow Satan to afflict Job, to prove something. Because God has been bragging on him, right? And so Satan argues, and I want you to think about this, Satan argues that if God removes the blessings and protection that he has around Job, that he will turn away from God and curse him to his face. And I want you to think about how many people 
turn away from the Lord when blessings and protection are removed. What do you think persecution is? There it goes. I mean, there's obviously you're going to have the conversation about there's different types of blessings, like intimacy with the Lord increases in persecution whenever you endure it the right way. And there's blessings, of course, in eternity for those who endure, right? But in the sense of our perception as humans, in a physical, worldly, materialistic sense, your blessings go right out the door when persecution happens. Your peace in life seems to go right out the door. And so God allows the enemy to come into Job's life to mess it up. So you read in Job chapter 1, verse 13 through 22, where it starts describing what Satan does whenever he's allowed to go afflict Job. And this is what, what we read. Now on the day when his sons and his daughters... That's Job chapter 1, starting verse 13. Now on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians attacked and took them. They also slew the servants of the edge with the with the edge uh, with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them, and slew the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return thither the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Now, this is something really interesting to consider. Satan takes Job's property, his wealth, and even his children. And I want you to think about that. And what if you were sitting at work one day, or say you went to the grocery store or something, you're away from home. You get a phone call on a cell phone or something. And somebody says, hey, every single thing that you own was just stolen by these people. And then in the midst of you hearing that, someone beeps in. And you're like, hold on, I got another call. Let me see. Somebody else calls, and it's the bank and all these people saying, hey, your, your whole thing has been compromised. The IRS and the government have confiscated all of your money and your savings accounts, your stocks, Everything that you own has been seized by the government. And then, in the midst of that call, you get a call from somebody else, and it's the police saying, hey, something has happened at your house. Your whole family, all of your children, they were killed. And I want you to happen, if that happened in rapid succession, how would you respond? And I want you to think about this. Job did not blame God. We don't read that he understands what's going on. And even one of the servants who came to talk to him is said, well, it was the fire of God fell from heaven. And it was Satan doing all these things. 
God allowed him. God allowed him to take Job's property. God allowed him to take Job's wealth, his money. And God allowed him to take the life of his children. I want you to think about that. Now, obviously, God gave permission and allowed all these things. Now, I want you to read the beginning of Job chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, and see what he said, what happens next time. This is after that happened. And it says in Job chapter 2, verse 1, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there was no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. However, put forth now your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, he will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power, only spare his life. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Now I want you to think about this. God points out Job again, and God specifically says it's without cause. Job didn't do anything to earn this. Satan argues that a man will do anything to preserve his life or his health. But God gives Satan permission to afflict Job's physical body and health. Now, this is absolutely pointing out the error of the, the prosperity gospel, the, faith, the positive confession movement, the hyper-charismatics where, say, sickness is always of the devil. Well, no, scripturally, some, sometimes it is from the devil or an unclean spirit. Sometimes. Sometimes it's just the natural course of life. But in this specific case, it was specifically from the enemy of God, by God's permission to afflict him. And even though, and it's without cause, right? Now, the next two verses, we read Job 2, verses 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Now, Satan stirs up Job's own wife to stand against him. And she pretty much says, no, you need to curse God and just die, you know, kill yourself or something. You know, life's not worth living like this kind of thing, right? Lost everything. And you have to remember, she's lost all those things too. But she didn't endure. And now, if you consider the rest of the book of Job, Job, chapter th- Job chapters 3 through 37, with the exception of when uh, the one is talking to the end, Elihu, they record Job's friends arguing against his opinion that he has done nothing wrong. All this, Job, in the whole book, Job didn't know what was going on, but maintained his innocence. He was pretty much, I don't know what's going on. I just want to come and argue with God. I don't know what's, what's I don't have no understanding. I know that I haven't sinned to earn this. And, but he doesn't charge God foolishly. He comes very close, and in some things he says, you're like, well, no, that's not necessarily right, Job. But his overall general tone of what he's saying is like, I don't understand what's going on, but I, don't, I have no awareness or no, under, no belief that, that I've earned this in the sight of God. And according to God's word, he's right. 
Now, to summarize before moving into look at some of the particulars, to summarize, God will intentionally allow you to be tested. He will intentionally remove his protection and felt presence to test your affections. Do you really want God or do you just want feelings? What's in your heart? What are you following after? What is your hope? What is your affection set on? God will allow false prophets and false signs and wonders to test your affections. If you want false signs, if you want just miracles, if you want all these things, you know, you know, tongues or, you know, prophesying, whatever. Hey, there's other places to go get that than the Lord. But there's only one Lord. And God will allow divisions in the body of Christ to manifest those approved in his sight. These are all specifically stated in Scripture. Now, common temptations, remember, are the deceitfulness of riches or wealth, the cares and the worry of this world, and the lusts of other things. And now, to summarize what Satan, just in this passages that we've read, Satan, when God gives him permission, he will attack your property, he will attack your wealth or your money, and that you could include in that your livelihood, you know, how you get those things. He will attack your family, and God allowed him to take the life of some people. But remember, all this is when God gives permission. Satan will also attack your physical health if he has permission. And also, he will stir up family members against you. Remember Job's wife. And also, he will stir up friends against you. So when you think about it, there is really no area of your life that God may not allow you to be tempted or tested. He will allow the enemy to come in for a specific reason, to test you, to test where your affections are. Is your hope in having a nice, middle-class, peaceable life in the, in the United States here? Or is your hope in Christ? You know, can... I mean, is there a line in the sand when you're going through things saying, Lord, you know, I just passed this point. I cannot follow you. Well, you see, that's the point. The enemy's going to try to push you against that and push you over that line. And whenever you have this ought building in your, this kind of anger, this kind of like, Lord, it shouldn't be this way kind of thing, right? Like, oh, why are you doing this to me, Lord? Remember, the gospel is not about fairness. It's not fair. You would say, oh, this isn't fair. Oh, no, of course it's not fair. It's not fair that Christ should die in your place either. The whole point of the gospel is not being fair. It's not justice. It's mercy. This isn't law. This is grace. Now let's consider Job's response in the midst of his trial. In Job chapter 23, verses 1 through 12, this is what we read. And he's in the middle of talking to some of his friends who are arguing wrong things against him. Then Job replied, Even today my complaint is rebellion. His hand is heavy despite my groaning. He's talking about the Lord. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn the words which he would answer and perceive what he would say to me. Would he contend with me by the greatness of his power? No. Surely he would pay attention to me. There the upright would reason with him, and I would be delivered forever from my judge. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he acts on the left, I cannot behold him. He turns on the right, I cannot see him. But he knows the way I take. When he has tried me, 
I shall come forth as gold. My foot has held fast to his path. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. And so Job's attitude in the midst of all these things is he didn't understand what was going on. He says he's got complaints. He's, you know, he's just raising up his, his kind of sense against the Lord. He's like, Lord, what's going on? I don't understand. Why would you do this? You know, he doesn't understand. He's like, I, I'm just, I want to come before you and I want to present my case. I just want to be like, Lord, what's going on? And I want to hear what you have to say, Lord, so that you would explain to me so that I can understand. And then he's like, I look, I'm looking around and I see all these things happening and there's these things going on, but I can't, I don't, I can't find you. I'm seeking you to, to try and get this place of understanding, but I can't get there. There's like, you're withholding yourself from me. I don't understand. There's something, but I, you know, he just doesn't understand what's going on. He's trying to figure it out. He's trying to find the Lord in all this, but he can't find him. But notice in the midst of all his confusion, in the midst of his trial, in the midst of his temptation and anxieties, he says, I have held fast to his path, and I have not turned away. He says, I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the command of his lips. And so though all of his confusion, though all of, of the things going on, he was refusing to allow these things to move him out of the way of following the Lord, regardless of what else was happening. And so at the end of the book, of Job, and it says in Job, James chapter 5, verse 10 and 11, remember, it says to consider the end of the Lord, to consider the end of his dealings, that he's merciful and compassionate. And so the Lord shows up at the end of, book, of the book of Job, and he kind of rebukes Job from getting a little, you know, kind of raising a little too much complaint against the Lord. And then he rebukes Job's friends because they were just wrong. And then, but what Job says in the end is, I had heard of you with the hearing of mine ear, but now mine eye has seen you. He had a greater intimacy with the Lord at the end of these things. It's interesting to note that it's never said that God explained to him what was going on. You know, we can reason, okay, it was Job the one who wrote it down, or there's some reason to believe it was Elihu, you know, but it's never within the book said that God explained to Job what was going on. And so you have to start looking at adversity and temptations as things that are trying to move you away from the gospel, from your hope actually being set on them. And so when you're in the midst of these things and you recognize that ought rising up in you to have a problem with the way that the Lord is dealing with you or allowing you to be dealt with, right? Things aren't going the way that you want. It has to be a point of submission and be like, I know what's going on. I know that this is a trial. And you don't have to understand it. You don't have to stop seeking for understanding. But one thing you have to do is be like, Lord, I'm not moving away from you. I'm not going to allow the enemy to push me to just give up and sin against you. Because every single thing that you endure just because the Lord is the Lord and your hope is set on the gospel, your hope is set on Christ, it's just you can just imagine it's just like the Lord's like, see, look, there's my servant. He holds fast his integrity. It's a bragging point in a sense, not because you're awesome, but it also, it glorifies the Lord because it shows something that you would esteem Christ to be that 
worthy, to be that valuable in your sight that you will endure these things just because he is the Lord. It glorifies the Lord, but it also diminishes in a sense, although nothing can actually diminish the glory of the Lord. It shows how little you esteem the glory of the Lord whenever for a quick satisfaction of lust or for stealing or for the lust of your flesh regarding hunger and you'll steal or you'll lie or the pride of life, you'll cheat, steal to get ahead. It shows how little you actually esteem the Lord whenever something so frivolous can lead you to turn, to compromise his ways. And so the kind of the marching orders about this in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Every single thing that you endure in this world, it's not for it's not for nothing. Your life is just but a vapor. Doesn't feel like that, but it is. And you're going to be it's those who understand this who are going to be esteemed to be the wisest when the judgment seat of Christ comes. And they were laying up in store for eternity instead of worrying about lining their bank account or you need to have millions of dollars in your 401k. Are those things wrong? No, not if your affections are not set on them. You know, if wealth increases, set not that hard upon it, it says in Proverbs. Your hope is set in Christ. Take all these things away. Let the enemy rage. The peace of God is not you in the midst of the storm and you crying out to the Lord and saying, Lord, I need this storm to stop so I can have peace. And the Lord comes in, stops the storm. Hey, that'll happen sometimes in your life. It will be. It's going to be according to the will of the Lord, though. God will do that sometimes. The peace of the Lord sometimes is going to be you in the middle of the storm, just patiently enduring it. And that's something you have to learn. Be immovable in your commitment to the hope of the gospel. Don't allow anything to come between you and the Lord. In everything, let the Lord be Lord in your life. Thank you for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. We do hope and pray that you would commit your life to Christ and continue in Him. We desire to see people seeking Jesus Christ and coming to know Him personally. If you have questions about salvation, the Bible, or your own walk with Christ, please contact Brother Jonathan by email. Brother John, that's J-O-N, at remnantbiblefellowship.com. That's Brother John at remnantbiblefellowship.com.